So today I'm joined uh, by Dr. Mark Kidd, Scientific and Laboratory Director of REN Laboratories. REN Laboratories was established by Mark and Dr. Urban Modlin in 2010. Um, it is a molecular genetics testing company that employs 25 people in Brantford, Connecticut. Um, REN was the uh, first US lab to receive approval of a unique saliva-based COVID PCR test. We'll talk a lot about that. Um, it's also developing uh, liquid biopsy diagnostic tools for uh, cancer and viral tests. So I want to start uh, again. Welcome, welcome, Mark, and um, tell Thanks, us Paul. just the history of REN. Um, bring us up to date. Um, how did you go from startup company? I think you you came out of Yale, and what was that process like to becoming a for-profit company? Well, first of all, Paul, thank you. It's a it's an honor to be on the webcast podcast and to, to be able to talk to you about REN um, and how we are developing our assays to help Connecticut, both at a business level and uh, in the hospital setting, our oncology diagnostics. So I was very fortunate to work for about two decades at Yale University with my mentor, Professor Irvin Modlin, and we developed a whole set of um, assays evaluating how cancers develop um, despite the intellectual ferment and the opportunities we had at the prestigious institution we decided we we're going to branch out and really try and make a difference and that really led to the development initially of a startup Ren labs which is now a clinical testing and r d facility in Branford, connecticut and we offer both um, blood-based diagnostics as well as our saliva COVID test. And so how was, how was the process? Was Connecticut a, a, you know, a startup favorable environment? Was the ecosystem for their fellow startup companies to talk to and help you mentor along the way? Um, or was it kind of just a straight shot out of Yale and you knew what you were gonna do and that was it? Yeah, I think we were. I think we were lucky that we knew where we were going. We had a very strong direction, but certainly um, we received a lot of support from the Connecticut Department of Health to set up our laboratory. Um, a number of people there have been amazing in terms of mentoring, and uh, the business environment has allowed us to grow. And there's a whole set of resources, intellectual resources that we can tap into. Number of institutions within the state, as well as uh, talent, young talented people. When mm -hmm. our COVID testing started to explode, for example, we were able to tap into young graduates from UConn, University of New Haven, Southern Connecticut State, and offer them employment opportunities. So we've really been lucky in that Connecticut has provided us with the resources we've needed to be successful. So the workforce, it, it worked pretty well in Connecticut. You were able to find the people you needed all the way up the chain from the top level sure. scientists down to the people doing laboratory regulatory compliance. Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And like I said, we've had a lot of help, support from the Connecticut Department of Health in this regard. So do you do, is it, is it um, primarily a research facility or do you, or do you are, are also doing some manufacturing in Brantford? Um, our focus principally is clinical testing and R&D. We don't, we don't spend too much time in the manufacturing sphere at all. So the equipment you use, you, you source to do your testing, you're, you're sourcing from other suppliers. 
is it? Correct, yeah. But, but you're, in some sense, you're manufacturing your tests. Correct. Your yeah, yeah that, is, that is correct. We do have an on-site facility that allows us um, to set up our testing and send out our saliva kits, for example. But the component parts are all obtained from other um, distributors, some of which are in Connecticut. Um, okay, so um, when you started out in 2010, that's that's correct. Um, right. Yep. So yep. you, COVID didn't exist. We were, we were blessedly free of COVID, but now of course we're you know happily coming out of it. But it's been quite a, it's been quite a shift for all of us. Um, and so you didn't go into business to do COVID testing. So how did you get into that test? Well. We circle back to the Connecticut Department of Health, and uh, I mentioned earlier that we've worked with them and they'd helped us um, in regard to regulatory compliance, et cetera, for our clinical testing. And they said, well, you guys do great cancer tests. You've got all the tools. Can you actually develop something for COVID for us? So we were asked uh, by, by the governor and, and his team to develop the test. And we decided we were gonna focus um, on COVID with a specific interest in saliva, because I'm not sure if you you have, but I certainly have had received a nasopharyngeal swab and it feels like your brain is going to explode. So yeah. it's not very pleasant. So we thought, okay, the first thing we're gonna do is try and develop a easy to collect test and the obvious is saliva. So we developed a saliva collection kit, uh, which is easy and rapid. Um, and then we had a couple of other problems to work through, and one was how to make sure that we could ensure that the virus was um, collected without degrading, because things, things disappear in saliva. So we built a special buffer to make sure that we could collect the virus and, and it wouldn't um, be destroyed. And then the last part was we decided we were going to focus on building a test that was very, very accurate and would not be affected by all the mutations and variants that are now being developed. So the three areas we focused on, saliva, easy to collect, stabilize, and not be affected by mutations. And um, I'm not sure if you're aware, Paul, but uh, in 2000, and in February of this year, we received the Innovators Award from uh, Senator Murphy. For the work that we're doing. So there's a recognition. Congratulations. Thank you. There's a recognition that uh, we went the we went the right track and Department of Health did the right thing by asking us to develop our assay. So the, the buffer that you talked about with the saliva test, is that what makes it so different from so I guess why are so many tests and why people are much more familiar with the nasal swab tests? Um, is that why most COVID tests have been a nasal swab, not a saliva-based test, because of the difficulty in developing a, a, a buffer? I think so. I think nasal swabs are easy to do. And of course, when the pandemic uh, erupted, there was a requirement to do testing quickly. So nasal swabs are the easiest. It became the standard. I think with time, there's been more and more literature coming out showing that saliva is probably more accurate than a nasal test. But the problem with saliva is you need to be able to stabilize it. So mm -hmm. that step of building a buffer 
became a very, very important component. And we were fortunate enough to, to have built a buffer for our blood cancer tests. So it made sense if it works in blood cancers, perhaps it could work for the virus. And in this case, it did. So you have a 24-hour turnaround time. So um, Correct. how are you able to do that? Because that's, a, again, that's a, most people are familiar with going in to have a nasal swab and they, they had to have a COVID test. And it you know, at best, um, it can be 36 hours, but usually, especially going back early COVID, it was several days, if not over a week for results. But you're able to do it in 24 hours. How is that possible? I think, uh, I think what has happened in the past was capacity was a problem. And people were had problems with uh, resources, tips in the laboratory, et cetera. So we set ourselves up in such a way that at this moment in time, we're not restricted by resources. We're not restricted by personnel. We have the capacity to run thousands of tests. And because we can do that, we have a very fast turnaround time. So within so, 24 hours. So how does it work? I mean, so um, uh, a patient collects the saliva, yeah. sends it in. Yeah, the, the, we, we have a number of, there are a number of different options. The first is we can actually come, for example, if we're working with a company, we'll set up a concierge testing uh, service where we'll drop off a set of saliva kits. The company will organize for the collection, for example, in the morning we'll have someone pick up those samples, return them to the lab, and then process them during the day. And the, the company and individuals will receive the results that evening. There are other examples, for example, where you could send in the uh, kit by FedEx. And once we receive it, it's processed within the lab and uh, reported on the same day. So your test, um, you know, everybody talks about your test as a you know, super accurate test. Um, and I guess the reason for that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is it, it's a PCR test. Correct. Um, and so a lot of the rapid tests or the rapid tests, I guess, by definition are not PCR tests. So I was hoping you could kind of educate us a little bit. What, what's, you know, what is a PCR test and why is it so valuable in terms of accuracy? I'm going to try and use as little jargon as I can. And I apologize if I do if some words do slip through, but um, there are two major tests. One is a PCR test and one is an antigen test. Antigen test normally falls under the umbrella of a, of a rapid test. There are a few rapid PCR tests as well, but for the purposes of, of, of this, we're gonna, we're gonna have a gold standard, slower, it takes about four hours PCR diagnostic test which is highly, highly accurate, above 99.9%. And our work with the FDA shows our assay will likely detect all known mutants close to 100% accurate. In comparison, a rapid test where you're either looking for a protein or it's a, it's a fast uh, isothermal, apologies for the jargon, PCR test, um, the accuracy in people who don't have symptoms, for example, is less than 50%. The accuracy in people who do have symptoms is maybe 60%. So a rapid test, which is cheaper, fast, you can some, sometimes you can do at home, 
is as accurate as flipping a coin or less. Um, so the, the, it may be attractive to get a quick result. I'm not sure it's very attractive to have an inaccurate result. So is a rapid test, it's valuable to the extent it is a, if it shows a positive um, result that you, you are infected with COVID. Yes. That's its, that's its really its only value. But if it's a negative test, it's really not, you still need to get a PCR test. That, that's correct. In fact, the CDC recommends that if you have any symptoms and you have a rapid test and the rapid test is negative, that you actually have a gold standard proper PCR test. Uh, I don't think it's financially sensible to do two tests. Do one PCR test upfront and save yourself the time, expense, and trouble. And so, is it um, accurate to describe the antigen test as, um, in some sense, searching for a particle of the of the uh, disease-causing agent um, versus the PCR test is actually uh, looking at the DNA um, of, of the of the disease-causing agent. So that, that, that's in some sense why it's so, so accurate. Is that, is that a good way to describe it? Yes, I think so. The, the antigen test is looking for a protein that the virus has made or is looking at antibodies that you yourself may generate. Mm -hmm. So that really is a historic, that's archaeological. That's a historical, maybe something was there or not. It doesn't actually tell whether you have the, the disease then and there. The PCR test is actually will detect the viral genetic material and it will detect the, 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 the material only if the virus is there and has the potential to be virulent or make you ill or um, make you contagious. And so that, that identifying, locating that DNA to do the PCR test, I hear that called DNA amplification. And so you've been very good at explaining this uh, this material for us. So just if you could, what is how do you, how do you do DNA amplification? So essentially, you're you're in some sense making you're finding a little piece of DNA and you're making a lot more of it to be able to test it. Is that? I, I think you're absolutely correct, uh, Paul. So the idea is that, well. Taking a step back, the SARS-CoV-2, the scientific name of the virus, it's actually an RNA virus. And it floats around in your system. And the idea is to pull that RNA virus out of saliva or nasopharyngeal or however you've collected it, um, and then convert it to DNA. It's a small piece of DNA. It's actually, uh, the whole size of the virus is about 30,000 letters. Imagine A, B, C, D, you know, mm -hmm. hang on for 30. That's how big it is. And we focus on a part of the virus, which is about 180 of those letters. It's very, very specific. Wow. So we, we focus on that 180 letter address, which says I'm the SARS virus. And we basically have like a which railway. Incredibly system. tiny. Yeah. What's that? Which is incredibly tiny. Incredibly tiny. And we, we've got the system that shuttles back and forth and essentially just amplifies that DNA signal. And we have um, a special machine with laser that actually, every time we go one way, it'll set, put a light signal and mm -hmm. that'll be two of them. And when it goes the other way, there'll be four of them. So the light signal goes 
1, 2, 4, 8, 16. It's basically 2 to the power of, of um, 2 to the power of 1, 2 to the power of 2, 2 to the power of 3. So not getting into the mathematical mathematics, but essentially you have an explosion of the DNA signal, an explosion of the light. And um, the importance of the, 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 the gold standard PCR test is that it's very, very accurate. It can pick up one particle. In fact, we can pick up two virus, uh, the REN test can pick up two virus particles in a microliter. So it's, it's the most sensitive uh, uh, test by FDA measurements right now. Wow, fascinating, fascinating. Um, so, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, uh, hopefully, um, it seems like you know cases are declining, uh, certainly, certainly in this country. Um, what's the need for continued testing? Is, is how important is that? Yeah. So we are entering the world of unknown at the moment, and yes, all the news we're getting is that we are exiting COVID. We're also entering summer. There's all these different dynamics that are going on, but it's actually at this time that we we should be most careful because, as you're aware, with um, lifting of traveling limit, limitations, for example, the viruses which are mutating in India and other parts of the world will come will enter the United States. I mean that's how the the viruses came in. They came in through Europe, travel from from the UK. So with travel, with, with lifting of travel restrictions, with people wanting to spend more time outdoors, with people wanting to gather together, this is probably the time, likely the time, where we're going to see that next wave within the US. And it's critical to be aware and to have protocols in place uh, to detect the virus. Um, the, other, the other side of the equation, of course, is vaccination protocols. And Connecticut has been very, very good at focusing on vaccination. But what vaccination does is it doesn't prevent you from being infected by the virus, nor does it prevent you from spreading the virus. It decreases the chances, but you can still do it. So imagine vaccination, let's not do anything about it. Lots of mutations which may or may not escape the vaccine program. It's potentially uh, problematic. Ren's DNA says detect to protect. If you've got an accurate testing tool in place and there's any, uh, any thoughts about reducing the virus, you need to do a PCR test to do that. And now's the time. Mm -hmm. so do, you, do you contract with a lot of employers to, to do you know, the workforce testing? And how about schools too? I mean, that's yeah. So actually, a huge, huge conduit there of infection because, of course, the kids at least under twelve can't be vaccinated. So I mean, the two, the probably the two biggest areas are essential manufacturing, manufacturers, farming, agriculture, and schools. Um, and we've 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 received a lot of interest from groups who are, who want to test school children, for example just because they want to go back to some form of normality. And I can't forecast what the FDA or CDC is going to choose to do, but it's likely that testing will be normal, become normalized for kids 
going back to school on a weekly basis, which means kids are going to have to be tested once a week, or there's going to be some bulk testing with random testing. Testing is going to just become part of our normal lives. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about COVID, and as I started, as I started to say in the beginning of, of this conversation, that's of course not, not not how you started out to do COVID testing. So, right. um, so tell us tell us about the cancer cancer test, the viral test. I mean, those are those are just really really intriguing and uh, sort of, mm -hmm. as I understand it, the future the future of medicine. So, mm. talk a little bit about those those tests. Yeah, certainly, Paul. Um, One of the, one of the, well, there's, there are lots of problems um, with diagnosing and monitoring cancers. And I'll give you a very simple example. If you've had a tumor and the tumor has been removed, the question is, do you have anything left behind or not? So the obvious solution is to try and, to try and develop or have tests in place that can detect whether you have any residual disease. Um, for the physician, it's important. For the surgeon, it's important. And of course, for the patient, it's important. Am I actually cured or not? And I'm sure there are many, many times where people are told that they have been cured, but we all know that with time, diseases do recur, cancers do recur. So one of the very first things we try to do was to develop highly accurate PCR tests, blood-based, because it's easy to take a blood sample, blood-based tests to detect residual cancer disease. Um, quite recently, we've had a couple of presentations, podium presentations, for example, at the American Surgical Association, at the American Association for Endocrine Surgeons, where Professor Modlin has presented our work demonstrating how effective such a molecular test is. And in these studies, which are world, worldwide studies, we've collected patients, done the test before the surgery, done the test after the surgery, and if the test is positive after surgery, predicts the patient will develop disease. And the test is so accurate, it will detect disease up to two years before standard, um, standard approaches like imaging can actually detect the disease. So PCR is a wonderful uh, tool because it amplifies not just the COVID virus to detect it yeah. very loyal. It also amplifies um, your cancer, the cancer genes. Yeah. So that's that's so we we focused on on developing tests that can help physicians and surgeons manage their patients uh, after surgery. Perhaps in response to therapy, we have a number of studies where we're looking at how the test can monitor whether the patient is responding to a therapy or not. Um, in this economic climate, it makes good sense not to spend money on treatments which are expensive and don't work. So those are, that, that's, those are our areas of interest. How do we help surgeons know whether they've cured a patient? How do we help health economists and Medicare know whether a drug is working or not. Interesting. So if, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, someone could have a very sophisticated imaging test, a PET scan, a CAT scan, MRI, one, one of those um, you know, very high resolution imaging tests. 
and seemingly be cancer free, but could have a have one of your blood tests where they might confirm that, which would be great news, or you might see that there is some residual cancer, uh, Correct. which would then yeah. offer further treatment. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like earlier think, intervention. Yeah, I think, and I think we, we would both agree that both of us would like to know if we require that early intervention or not. I think it's good for the physician and it's very, very good for the patient. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to go right into it. I mean, if, I uh, was reading a couple of weeks ago a book called The First Cell, all about cancer treatment and how, you know, getting that first cell. So we often we treat cancer when it's very far progressed and there are millions of cells and you can get those first early cells. And it seems like that's what your test, Yeah, that's, that's what you're getting at. You've hit the nail on the head. Uh, early detection is the best protection. Early detection is the best way to treat cancers. Yeah. So are there any, um, any of the cancer tests, are they, are they ready for prime time now and in use? Yeah, um, we've developed a prostate cancer test, which we hope to, um, which we hope to provide to the public very, very shortly. Uh, we're developing a breast cancer test, which is close to fruition. And there are a series of other similar cancer tests, colon cancer, lung cancer, we're working on right now that we hope to be able to provide um, to physicians to better look after, better manage their patients. So mm -hmm. we've been busy. COVID, COVID has taken up a lot of our time, but our DNA is really cancer testing. And um, as I mentioned earlier, cancer hasn't gone away. It's still mm -hmm. with us. So, uh, so what's the future for RIN? Um, what's the, you know, the art going forward? Well, I think, I think we will, first of all, I hope my enthusiasm comes out <laughs> in everything that I said. I mean, we, our DNA really is to develop assays which can both help individuals. And in this case, we've been talking about COVID too, so help businesses in Connecticut. Um, and we will continue to do that. Uh, we hope to expand our portfolio of, of cancer tests. We hope to um, develop tools to collect blood, smaller and smaller blood samples. We hope to develop a point of care tool somewhere along the line. Um, and saliva is an interesting, saliva is an interesting medium by itself. And mm -hmm. you know, we talk about COVID nineteen, but there may be a COVID twenty one. Mm -hmm. Not a COVID twenty one, then something slightly different. So we have everything in place to be able to respond to the next viral uh, attack mm -hmm. on the United States and on Connecticut businesses. So we'll just continue. We'll continue uh, responding as needed. And so your your customers are really worldwide, correct? I mean, it's that's correct. Mm -hmm. Um, we have a laboratory here in Connecticut, and we have a second laboratory in London, UK. Um, so slowly expanding. And so, are, are you you're a privately held company at this point? Yes, we are. Yep. And uh, are you always in need of so startup companies or early stage companies are often always looking for for funds? Are you are you, do you spend a lot of time fundraising, or is it? Um, 
is the funding stream sort of in place? Um, we, we're established, our funding stream is in place. Well, um, Dr. Kidd, it's been great talking to you. Uh, this has been fascinating and I wish you luck, uh, both the company and it's a great, I think it's a great message for certainly the residents of Connecticut and, and patients worldwide. So thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure being here.